Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. We've gotten too many questions to count about what we're going to do after this election. We get emails and town hall questions all the time about what will become of the Lincoln Project after all the votes have been counted and Joe Biden is sworn in as the 46th president of the United States. To help answer these questions, I'm sitting down this morning with my fellow Lincoln Project co-founder and independent political strategist, Reed Galen. Thanks for being on, Reed. Thanks, Ron. So, Reed, we've told our listeners before that they're not lucky enough to get rid of us after the inauguration. Sorry. (laughs) But now that all the votes are cast in the presidential election, how will the Lincoln Project look different between now and January 20th? Well, I think a, a few things. One, let's just once again say thank you to everybody yeah. who has who's gotten us here, right? I think, Ron, as you and I have probably said and others have said ad nauseum, if, if 11 months ago you told us this is where we'd be sitting on November 6th, 2020, also the anniversary of Abraham Lincoln's election to the presidency, yeah. um, I don't think any of us would have believed you. So, you know, a couple of things. One is that the things that you see from us that, you know, folks have come to get used to your podcasts, um, our LPTV broadcasts, our town hall meetings, our Facebook lives will continue just as we, you know, get into a transition period. There's probably a lot of folks who, you know, you know, are probably more tuned in this time. And, and so, you know, I, I look forward to, you know, with everyone else sort of walking the folks through how all this stuff works, how, it, why things happen, how they happen right up until the moment when, um, you know, Joe Biden puts, uh, you know, his right hand in the air and takes an oath to the Constitution. We shouldn't forget that there are now two Senate runoffs in Georgia, um, but one between uh, David Perdue and Mark Ossoff, or John Ossoff, excuse me, and the other one between Raphael Warnock and um, and Kelly Loeffler. So we'll be in there in the, you know, the, the inimitable style that we've come to be known for. Um, but I think as we look forward here, and there will be more details to come, I think that we have to decide what it is our role um, can and should be. Um, I think that we have been really fortunate to find so many folks who are kindred spirits that, you know, I think our underlying conceit has always been honesty. Um, and I think it could, should continue to be, we don't, we don't bend the truth. We don't stretch the truth. We don't twist facts to make an ad work. Everything that we said in an advertisement this year was true. Mm -hmm. Um, it was just, you know, done with a harder edge or more cutting in a more cutting way than people are probably used to. Um, but in the context of this, you know, who who better to deserve that than Donald Trump? Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, what we we should also be aware of is, you know, again, being candid, is that a lot of the stuff we've been thinking about, we did in the context of a Democratic Senate. Yes. And now it's either going to be evenly divided or a narrow Republican majority, which means that um, a lot of the things that we have talked about previously, whether or not that's a civil rights act, whether or not that's a voting rights act, election security, these things are anathema to Mitch McConnell yes. and many Republicans. Yes. So that's not to say the fight's not worth having and we won't be there. We will be there. I think if you look back, I think it was 2013 when the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965, they did it 
um, I think incorrectly, although I'm no, I'm no constitutional scholar, but the result has been the kinds of things we saw in Georgia this year, the things we saw in Kentucky this year, in Wisconsin mm-hmm. and Texas, mm-hmm. which is there, there was a time for decades that before states could do those things, they had to clear it with the Justice Department. Um, they don't have to do that anymore, which is now why you saw like a Greg Abbott decide he only wanted one Dropbox per county in a state the size of Texas uh, because he was able to do it with unfettered authority. Um, you know, once in a while, uh, as, as much as I believe that federal power should be, theor- generally speaking, curtailed, when it comes to increasing the franchise, i.e. the number of people who can and should be able to participate freely and fairly, the government, the feds do have a role in that. And so I think we have to get back to that. I think there's also, you know, the other side of that coin is election security. What is it we're doing, right? Does every state, you know, in every, does every county in every state need to have its own way of tabulating? I don't know. I think the states should think about that. But I think the states should also be provided resources necessary to ensure that whatever it is they're going to do, they're doing in the safest, you know, most efficient and, and, and most secure way possible. And I'm not entirely sure why Republicans have been so uh, against this for so long. Maybe now that Trump is gone, you know, they'll, they'll be, you know, more willing to look at these things. But I think also if there's one thing we've done this year is that we have been unconventional in the way we approach things. And so while it says, well, McConnell might have two votes, 51-49 or 52-48 or whatever it is, like, that's fine. That's math. Um, But we also know that there are a lot of ways to communicate with members of Congress in the House and in the Senate that can put pressure on them that are, you know, is not normal, that they're not used to. And here's one thing we know, like if there's one thing sitting legislators don't want, it's phone calls and emails from constituents. It's their least favorite thing in the world because it means someone's paying attention. And so maybe more broadly, we want to make sure that everyone we can find who's willing to listen to our voices and what we have to say is making sure that they're watching and that when we say, you know what, you guys should take a look at this and do something about it. And here's some ideas like that. We're able to deploy those millions of folks who Mm -hmm. have been willing to come along on this journey with Mm -hmm. us. Um, I also think that, you know, along all these same lines is, you know, we started out, you know, we're, you know, this never Trumper thing. Fine. But I think really it's, it's transcended that Um, Trump is going to leave, but Trumpism is not. Um, and so I think we also need to be on the fight in, against Trumpism and on behalf of democracy. And as Schmidt likes to say, the fight for democracy is not the soft side of the fight. It needs to be the tough side That's of the fight. That's right. That's right. That's and so right. what we're seeing is that, you know, look, a guy like Steve Bannon on his podcast yesterday said that Dr. Fauci should be beheaded and have his head put on a stake. Like that's, that's the kind of thing, like he, I think he got booted off YouTube and, and Twitter but like people are still going to download his podcast yes. in the, by the millions yes. or hundreds of thousands, whatever it is. And it's still going to filter through Facebook groups and it's still, it, this stuff finds its way. Uh, and so there's a lot of fighting to be done. And so I think that, you know, we know the Russians, you know, are probably not going to go quietly into that good night. We don't know about the Chinese, um, but we should assume, you know, we even saw the Iranians getting involved this year. So there's some foreign state actors that are out there. Uh, Zach and his team created the the troll hunters, mm-hmm. right? Where they have created, you know, tens of thousands of folks and educated them on how to recognize when something looks like propaganda-ish and how to tag those videos. Like we want to expand, you know, efforts like that. Anything we can do that sort of starts to seal off the sewer pipe of ugliness that filters out of all of these places 
mostly right-wing media, whether or not it's Mark Levin or uh, Rush Limbaugh or um, Glenn Beck. And then we should also assume that like Trump's going to have his own TV show at least and his own network more likely. And so the work on that front really is going to be, I think, crucial to all of this. Uh, And again, I think that will be doing a lot of the stuff that you have done and that a lot of our other folks have done so far, which is finding the best people, the smartest people, the most expert people in these things, explaining to folks how it works uh, in a way that's easily digestible and also easily shareable. And so I think that's a little bit of it. And then on the purely political front, 2022 will not be far away. And so guys like Marco Rubio and Ron Johnson uh, in the U.S. Senate, um, they have certainly bought their tickets and, you know, they're going to take their rides this year. And it'll be fascinating to see, too, because we should assume that both of them will probably be primaried by some pro-Trump person. Um, We should assume that if two or three people from QAnon got elected to the U.S. House this year, there will be, you know, dozens more on the ballot in 2022. And so there's a lot of work left to be done across the depth and breadth of the American political system. Okay, so Reed, let's dig into some of these more specifically with a long-term view for the Lincoln Project. So we've gotten hundreds of questions about whether the Lincoln Project is going to try to rehabilitate the Republican Party. And we've answered these questions as they've come in, but I'd like to do these sort of... Uh, comprehensively here. So is that part of the long-term plan? The Lincoln Project is not going to be involved in rehabilitating the Republican Party. First and foremost, I'm not sure at this moment in time, any level of rehab. I mean, you could send the GOP to Passages Malibu for three or four years, and I'm not sure it's going to get, <laughs> it's going to get fixed. Um, if anything, I think that, you know, Schmidt used this metaphor of, you know, when we assumed this was going to be a blowout. That the, that the GOP would become this smaller dying star. We'd get uglier yeah. and hotter and yeah. crazier. Yeah. I actually think that we could still use an astronomical metaphor, but it's gone supernova mm. and it's exploded and it's dropped its radioactive waste Everywhere. all over the country. Yeah. And so there's a pretty serious cleanup that needs to go on as well. I think we also, as I think, need to understand like why, why did 68 or 70 million Americans decide that Donald Trump was an acceptable choice? It's not enough to say, well, he's a Republican and I'm a Republican because he's not a Republican or at least not in any traditional manner. He is now because they are one and the same. Yes. Um, So I don't, I don't see us. Look, we, if there are folks who want to stay in the fight, God bless them. Um, If there are folks who want to go in there and try and find moderate center, right voices who are sort of traditionalists, institutionalists first, I think that's great. I think there are a lot of folks out there, a lot of smart smart folks out there, a lot of our friends who can and should do that. But that's not going to be our role in the world. The second most common question we get is, are we going to build a new political party and should voters expect to see a new Lincoln Party ticket? Well, Ron, as you know, more than anyone and Sarah, I mean, we spent a couple of years on the new political party front. It's a really hard thing to do. It's a really hard Um, thing to do. You know, most, what even I was shocked by is that, you know, political parties are started at the state level and every single state has its own rules. Mm -hmm. Some are very easy to get on the ballot, like a place like here in Utah. Some like in New York, which ironically was the only ballot line we got. Uh, You know, we found someone to run for governor. She got 50,000 votes and, you know, we got a ballot line there. Um, You have to do that 50 times. Um, You have to find people to serve as your board. You have to find people to serve as officers. You have to write bylaws. 
You have to open accounts. You have to do all these things. I'm not saying that's not a worthy endeavor. I'm just saying that at this moment in time, I'm not sure that it's the best use of our time and resources when I believe that there are even more fundamental democratic issues, small d democratic issues that we need to fix. Um, And so I think that, you know, we can and will play in elections and I think we'll play in a lot. Um, but I think we will play in a, in the context of who, you know, in, in a given race, is this person someone who is either antithetical to American values or promotes those values and will make decisions from there. But I think as far as parties are concerned, if someone wants to go down that route and dedicate the time and the resources necessary, I think that's great. I think that we don't have a center-right party in this country anymore. Um, the Republican Party has ceased to be that. I think the Democratic Party, frankly, is under its own. It's going to be, even with a Democratic president, is is going through its own transformation, but for the idea that Bernie Sanders was going to be the Democratic nominee, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that the the basically the establishment wing of the Democratic Party, you know, came in and saved itself. Donald Trump might be sitting on a second term right now. It's not to say that I don't appreciate Senator Sanders as a as a person who does also believe in the Democratic process, but in pure politics, we saw... You know, we've seen in a lot of research that if Americans are given the choice between a socialist and a sociopath, yep. they'll take the sociopath. Yeah, yeah. And d- d- let's be clear, Joe Biden's no socialist and they almost still took the and sociopath. they almost still took the sociopath. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That point about there being half the country who still thought that it would be a good idea to elect this guy, something that drew them to him is a thread that I plan to pull on until it becomes very clear. We spent most of our energy and resources on the presidential race, but also got into some of the Senate races. And it looks like there will be at least one fewer Trump enabler in the Senate now uh, that Arizona and Colorado kicked McSally and Gardner out of office. Will the Lincoln Project target other Republican senators in 2022? Oh, yes. The Lincoln Project will continue to hold accountable those senators who most enabled Trump. And frankly, even as this campaign was coming to a close, were either actively aiding, abetting uh, America's adversaries, a guy like Ron Johnson uh, in Wisconsin, or even up into the last week of the campaign, uh, Marco Rubio was in Florida extolling the virtues of a bunch of guys in pickup trucks trying to run a Joe Biden bus off the road. They both will get the treatment um, in 2022. We'll see who else is is up. I, I... you know, Stuart Stevens, who's one of our you know partners in crime on this deal, thinks we might see actually a fair number of Republican retirements. Uh, we've already seen Richard Burr isn't running again because he got you know he got tied up in an insider trading thing. Uh, Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania is not not running again, and you could see you know a whole bunch of other Republicans who just decide you know what like it's been a good run, I'm out. I will say this: it's interesting that even for those Republicans who stick around. Almost all of them, I assume, will will draw a primary challenge from someone far Trumpier than them. Yep. And I think the danger there is that they will spend the next two years trying to hew to some Trumpian line uh, in order to avoid the mob that so scares them uh, and probably very much dominates a Republican primary electorate in whatever state they live in. So far, Republicans have gained at least six seats in the House. Mm-hmm. We've also seen two Republicans who traffic in QAnon conspiracies elected to the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. Will the Lincoln Project look at targeting House races in the future? I think so. It was always going to be something that we thought about doing this year. Um, But as we grew um, and we frankly had, you know, more resources to both financial and, 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 
human wise yeah. to put to things. Yeah. It really became okay, let's let's focus on this these was things. job number one first. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, here's the other part too. Although, you know, now Speaker Pelosi has a much narrower margin, um, much narrower majority than she did. She still got a majority. We never expected that was going to change. I don't think certainly I didn't think they were going to lose as many seats as they did. I thought they'd pick seats up. But again, that goes to the so, the whole sort of like the blue wave didn't happen. Um, if anything, it was sort of like the, the waves crashed into each other yeah. and Joe Biden came out one side and Republicans and Congress came out the other. Um, but again, the most important thing is that Trump's not going to be president anymore. So from my perspective, disappointing on several levels, concerning on several levels. But if the main job was to get rid of Trump, all right, we've done that. Now let's go on to these other things. Yeah. We've talked about defeating Trump and Trumpism. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk a little bit about how far that mission reaches. Is it just at the national level? And what about on the state level or going bigger on the international stage? I think it has to be on the first two, it has to be both um, for a couple of things. One, the 2024 presidential campaign is going to begin later today as soon as Joe Biden yeah. is, is declared president-elect. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're going to see guys who even who are up for re-election in 2022, they're all going to be auditioning. Reed, I need to sleep for a month first. <laughs> I know, right? I know. Um, but the poor people in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina are never going to get a break. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. It'll be interesting too. I mean, think about this. And we talked about this a little bit yesterday, I think in a meeting, not to get too nerdy, but like the Trump family basically owns the Republican party. Yes. It owns all the data. Yes. It owns all the lists. Yes. Um, and we're not just talking about fealty here. Right. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 they literally own them, yes. I think, even legally. Yes. Um, most of the people, um, you know, when we were talking to Michael Steele the other night on election night, most of the people in these state parties are Trump loyalists. Yes. They, you know, they, they are specifically there because uh, they, are, they are loyal to Donald Trump and ultimately to the family. And so, you know, it's, it's now like, you know, this weird combination of like quasi- sad dynasty and ongoing criminal enterprise yeah, yeah. Uh, at these state at the state and local and national levels politically. And so, you know, they're going to have a lot of say uh, in who are Republican committee men and committee women who are state, you know, uh, chairs. And then ultimately like how the party's going to operate in 2024, where it's going to have its convention. What are the rules going to be about how people are nominated? What if they just say Donald Trump was defeated in 2020? We've now decided writ large He's our nominee yeah. for 2024. Yeah. Now, I don't know that they could probably do that in some states, but I would also say we should never forget. They don't really care what they can and can't do well, legally. There's and that. So, and remember that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are private organizations yeah. set up for the purposes of putting forth candidates. Yeah. And so if the RNC decides like Donald Trump's our guy and going to be our guy until we say he's not, I'm sure someone will tell me I'm wrong legally and they're probably right. But it's not that far off of reality that they would try and figure out how to do that. Well, and also the law really hasn't stopped them at all yet. No. Well, they haven't. No. So, um, and then I think at the state level, I think that there's work to be done. Um, I think in places like a Florida with a Ron DeSantis, who is not only Trumpy um, and, and, you know, did everything the president asked of him. But the, the end result of that was how many thousands of dead Floridians and sick Floridians from COVID because he wouldn't do what he needed to do. Um, Doug Ducey in Arizona, I think, might fit that bill, too. Um, and remember, these are just the pre-election lists. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll spend some more time actually looking at these states. And then I think in a state like Texas, Greg Abbott decided where he stood both on COVID and democracy. And he was on the wrong side of both. 
Uh, Dan Patrick was the same. He's the lieutenant governor there. Um, who remember back in April said we should let the old people die to save the the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, the Republican Party in Texas, you know, I look, I came up in Texas politics, right? I worked for for a guy named George W. Bush when he was a first term governor. Has gone so off the rails that they've basically inf- imported a Floridian to be their state party chair, and he's off the rails. And so, you know, what we saw with Beto in eighteen was there was a lot of movement, you know, in the suburbs towards Democrats. Saw some, you know, we saw some receding there, some rescission there um, in 2020, probably on the strength of Trump, so, such as it was. Um, but I think, you know, the the fight for the soul of Texas is on, and I think it should be it should be one where we really take it seriously. So let's go back to what Trump has done to the Republican Party and make something really clear for our listeners, because we've spent some time talking about the peaceful transition of power Mm -hmm. in the context of the presidency of the United States, the official power, but there will be no transition of power in the Republican party. No, it's here to stay. He's here to stay. The family is here to stay for the foreseeable future. Yeah. 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 The, the thing about this is, and this is where it's oddly fascinating how they've been able to do it. Um, because they're not good at anything no, else, right? They, no. They're not good at organizing. I mean, you no. even heard, uh, there was a story this morning about how like everybody in the White House is at each other's throats because the post-election strategy has been so messed up. Right. Well, really? No, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah. um, so yeah, it, it's not going to go anywhere for a while. Um, I think the question is, is like, how how long does Trump like do it? Because he's, you know, he's, he's ADD, right? So you would think, okay, if, if this is a way for him to, you know, ma- maintain and potentially expand his own power, such as it is, yeah. you could make, you could make an argument that that's what he wants to do, but that's a lot of thought on his part that he probably doesn't have. But he's and got so plenty of people around him. He yes. does have plenty of people around him. You know, uh, Steele said, was it either Steele or Stewart the other night said that, you know, that it's probably going to be Corey Lewandowski who they install as the new chair of the RNC. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I would just say this, dude. whoever the, uh, whoever the IRS agent is responsible for 310 First Street, Southeast, Washington, DC, 2003. Um, like I would say, get ready because the, the amount of graft yeah. <laughs> that's going to occur on the fourth floor of that building is going to be mind numbing. Um, but yeah, it, it, they're not going to go away. Don Jr. is going to use it as a platform. Eric's going to use it as a platform. Lara Trump clearly likes the Kleeglites. She's not going anywhere. Kimberly's going to use it as a platform. So they will utilize the RNC as basically the piggy bank to continue their travel, to continue their appearances and all that other stuff. So read really quick. While we've been sitting here, a spokesperson for the Biden campaign told the New York Times that if the race is called and the president of the United States refuses to concede, that the federal government is perfectly capable of escorting trespassers out of the White House. Well, this is true for a couple of reasons. One is that as of noon on January 20th, 2020, Joseph Robinette Biden will be president of the United States, which means that first and foremost, the military will now listen to him. The guy with the football with the nuclear codes goes and stands next to Joe Biden, not Donald Trump. He has no further authority within the federal government. The only federal connection that Trump will have will be li- uh, probably lifetime secret service protection. They will pay for some office space, which means they'll pay Trump Tower uh, as, a, as a former member of the presidency and whatever, you know, and then like, you know, cars and motorcade stuff, right? That's it. Um, if he refuses to leave the White House, 
Like the Secret Service will say, Mr. President, it's time for you to get in this car. Like that's what they're going to do. It's not his house anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's uh, hearkening back to 2000. And I, I apologize to my Democratic friends or our Democratic listeners that during the recount, um, protesters stood outside the observatory in Washington, D.C. and screamed at Al Gore, get out of Cheney's house. You know, I wonder if anybody will stand on Pennsylvania Avenue and say, get out of Biden's house. I wonder <laughs> if there's anyone in Washington, D.C. <laughs> who might want to take that up. Although they've built an 87-foot wall around the place, so maybe they won't hear you anymore. One of the common critiques and fears of the Lincoln Project is that we would try to push a Biden administration further to the right. How would you address those concerns? Well, let, let me take the most, you know, to that same thing. You know, we I've heard from a lot of folks too, and, you know, we see it on Twitter, take that what it's worth. Um, you know, we're going to take our skills and we're going to turn it on Democrats. Like, that's not what we're going to do. We're not Democrats, but we're not looking to take Democrats out either. Right. That being said, the Lincoln Project's job is not to disintermediate arguments between the Biden wing of the Democratic Party and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Our job, as I see it, is to understand what's best for the country and to the extent that we can help a President Biden pursue those aims, that we should do that. Um, As I've said many times on, on your program, Ron, that until and unless we get COVID under control, nothing goes back to normal or even the new normal, which is really what it's going to be. You know, we don't go back to work. We don't go back to school. Kids who are trying to go to college, you know, are going to sit in their dorms and do this stuff, you know, by Zoom for however long their parents might be willing to pay for it. Uh, Folks who are trying to go to community college or a trade school aren't going to be able to go because they can't go in person. Um, Probably, and, you know, probably for a trade school, distance learning, probably just not a realistic opportunity. Um, And, you know, so there's a generation of young people in this country who are sort of have their lives on hold. You know, the good news is, is, you know, I was telling my wife the other day, I said, can you imagine when our kids are older and their kids are complaining? They say, you know, when I was in fourth grade, I had to go to, I had to go to school on Zoom because there was a pandemic, right? (laughs) So um, we do tend to get through these things. It will shape all of us. It will shape my kids' lives and the younger generations. But I think that if we can help Joe Biden, you know, figure out a way both politically and from a policy perspective to say, these are the things this country needs to do. I think they're going to need to be bipartisan in nature. So if that means that, you know, some Republican members of Congress or members of the United States Senate need to be reminded who their, who their first uh, responsibility is to, then we'll go in and we'll do those things. Yes. And addressing some of these major problems in our country is likely going to require some considerable amount of discomfort on the part of Republicans. And Mm -hmm. we should remind everyone, we're not a policy operation here. Right. Now, we're, we're not for specific policy. That's not what we do. We say, okay, what is the political outcome we're trying to achieve and how can we best achieve that? I would say, again, you know, Republicans, and we already saw this during the, the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, that they didn't want to do uh, additional stimulus because they wanted to be able to say they're fiscal conservatives. So they were willing to put someone on the court, but not provide relief to Americans. That's, that's not, this is not that's good bad. politics and it's yeah. not good humanity. Yeah. I think McConnell will say now he wants to try and get something done in the will. lame duck so yeah. that he can he can take credit for it, but then not have to do it under a Biden presidency because that's that's the kind of guy he is. Um, 
But remember, Republicans are not fiscal conservatives anymore. That's right. Um, they decided to blow up, you know, $10 trillion hole in the budget with a, with tax cuts they didn't ever have any plan to pay for. And then, you know, they spent another $3 trillion on relief this spring. So, like, it's not as if they've always said, okay, well, here are the purse strings. Let's really be careful with them. They'll try and do that now, as, as, as Wilson likes to say, as they start to run Trumpism through the car wash and make it more yeah. palatable to people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we won't let them get away with that either. Um, again, I think that, you know, if sunlight is the biggest disinfectant, then how can we point as much sunlight as we can at these guys? Yeah. I also think that there are probably things that are going to need to be done um, in this country that will be big, that need to be done on a bipartisan basis. Yes. It can't be Obamacare 2.0. It can't be tax cuts 2.0. It's got to have Republican and Democratic votes. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when, when you had the specter of Trump in the White House at the other end of the aisle or the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, Maybe those things weren't possible. Um, you know, can, yeah. can, can we pause for a moment just to contextualize the need for bipartisanship on major pieces of legislation? Because as you know, and can probably articulate very well, the major enduring pieces of legislation that have shaped this country over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years have been a product of cooperation by both parties where nobody got everything they wanted and everybody got some of what they wanted. Everybody ended up walking away satisfied. But there have been some major pieces of legislation recently that have turned into political footballs and have, have been the thing that we just focus on fighting over. And and they stop the country from moving forward. They have the opposite effect when right. one party rams something through without support of the other party. Can you just expand sure. on that a little bit and explain why it is fundamental to our politics mm -hmm to the functioning of democracy that we actually achieve. Yeah. Consensus. I mean, look, I mean, if you I mean in the context of how we think about bipartisanship probably really starts, at least for me, I can't speak for others, probably like with FDR yeah. and the new deal. Yeah. The new deal was a bipartisan piece of legislation. Now Republicans hated it. And sure. They said he was a pinko sure. communist and whatever, but a few of them still voted, but for they, it. they voted for it. Yeah. Um, you know, if you look at Eisenhower, right, the internet interstate highway system was a bipartisan piece of legislation. Republicans and Democrats went along with it. Um, you know, after John Kennedy's death, uh, the voting rights act, the civil rights act, yeah. 64 and 65 were bipartisan pieces of legislation. Now, you know, LBJ cost the Democrats the South by doing it, but he did the right thing. He did the right thing. And still. he had to jawbone yeah. a bunch of Northern and Midwestern Republicans to come across the line, but he got it done. Yes. I mean, even back into the eighties, remember yeah. that when we needed to raise taxes because we'd spent, we'd started spending some, well, we'd reduced tax rates and we'd started spending so much money on the military that like Republicans and Democrats voted for tax increases. Yeah. Uh, remember that George HW Bush voted for tax increases. Um, and it ultimately cost him his term probably, but they did those things. And so I'm not just going to use tax increase, but those things were bipartisan. Then, you know, starting in probably, you know, the mid nineties after Gingrich took over in the house, you know, those things start to become less and less. You see, I mean, they did things like the crime bill, yeah. um, which in retrospect was bad. Yeah. Um, they did welfare reform as a bipartisan thing. Um, but really after that, you didn't see much. I guess maybe Bush early 01 on uh, No Child Left Behind that he did with Teddy Kennedy, of all people. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm not making any any political right, judgments right, right, right. on these this things. Is, just This is about the politics of it because that, right. you're talking about a moment when we started to shift from doing the work right. to locking in bigger and bigger majorities so that we didn't have to do the work. Right. And, you know, so we saw that... Um, 
with like Obamacare, for example, right? Remember, Obama is swept in on a massive wave. He's got 60 votes in the Senate, filibuster-proof majority. Even then, it took him every last bit of political capital to get all 60 of those. Well, actually, he had to get 59 because remember, uh, Ted Kennedy died and then then Scott, what's his name, um, got elected to the, the Senate in Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, so then they had to go through reconciliation, which I don't understand. And I'm not going to try and make anybody else do it either. The point was it was some legislative trick to get it done. Exactly. And it's talking about the ACA right now, right? Yeah. Which, which not a single Republican voted for right. the sing, the Republican idea. Let's be it very clear Republican about this. Idea. No, I mean, Gingrich yeah. had talked about it. Yeah. Romney put it into practice in the Massachusetts. The Heritage Foundation drafted it. Right. And yeah. then when it became Obama's, they didn't like it anymore. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, and so- but what happened was that that became the, the touchstone for something like the Tea Party, um, which drove, you know, Republican majorities in 2010 um, and, and you know, really hobbled Obama, you know, for the, most of the rest of his term legislatively because, you know, I mean, Mitch McConnell even said, my, my job is to make him a one-term president. Well, if you're the Senate leader of the Republicans and that's your only job, then you're not going to get anything done. And, you know, and by the we, way, that's not your job. Right, not your job. And then we saw again in 2017 with the with the Republican tax cuts. Again, no Democrats came across the line for that. And, you know, it drove it drove Democrats out, or excuse me, drove Republicans out of the majority in the House the following year. And so what's happened is now is, okay, we have power. Let's use it as much as we can because we're probably not going to have it for very long. Yeah. Which, of course, leads to exactly what you're afraid of as opposed to, why don't we do what's right, build durable majorities, show our voters why it is we're doing right by them. Take a long view of the success of the country. And, oh, you know what? They might reelect us, (laughs) right? It doesn't have, I mean, right now we're in this ping pong ball, right? 06, 08, 2010, 2012, 2014, back and forth. It's all, it's not good for the country and it's not good for the, it's not good for governing. Right. Because everybody's just assuming they're going to lose next time. So they're just trying to get as much as they can while the getting's good as opposed to saying, why are we here in the first place? Yeah. And I think that's, you know, not to go all sort of, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, but like those people go there not to push pet projects or a purely ideological perspective, but I am here to serve. Yes. And that means that you may be AOC and you represent Queens and you have your perspective. Yeah. And it might mean you're Connor Lamb and you represent Southwest Pennsylvania. You're both Democrats, yeah. but the worlds you occupy are two are entirely different. different places. Yes. So like, why don't you say, okay, well, the Venn diagram is that there's 80% of things that are good for everybody. Why don't you start, don't there, start there as opposed to the 20% sliver that's going to just drive everybody apart? So Ron, yes. hot seat. <laughs> Finally, after all these months, um, we both came to this place from different perspectives, right? I mean, you grew up the the son of, of evangelicals in, in Nevada, and I came up yeah. as, um, you know, the son of people in politics in Washington, D.C., but somehow we ended up at this table together, and thank God for it. So as we move forward, what do you see for, for both us and the country? You know, I'm not used to answering the questions. I know. I like asking them. I understand. I'm, uh, I'm really worried about where we are mm. emotionally as a country, and I heard something a couple of days ago on a podcast I listened to that has really been been working on me. Mm-hmm. And I want to spend a lot of time thinking about it. The point this person made, and Sam Harris, by the way, 
was that, first of all, we really have to understand the appeal of Trump. Sure, we talked about this sure. a little bit with Rick the other day about the supply side of the, of the toxic information ecosystem. But the demand side is arguably more important I because completely like agree. you said, 68 million people still thought that this guy was better than the other guy. Yeah, look, I mean, just because you have 68 million pairs of ugly shoes right. doesn't mean 68 million people want to buy them. Right, 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 right. <laughs> right. Right. And so I think we have to spend some really serious time understanding the appeal of Donald Trump to half the country. And one of the things that he mentioned was, well, you can look at all of the virtues that you might want in a leader. And just think of them like dials. And Donald Trump's are just off the charts in the wrong direction. Every single one. He's just a bad person. He's a bad human being. And bad human beings can't be good leaders. And because he's such a bad person, he can't ever make a moral argument. He can't ever take the moral high ground. He can't. He's incapable of it. And, and would also say yeah. he thinks that's somehow weak. And he thinks that's somehow weak. But but if you think about him as as just he's a person who can never be better than you, mm -hmm. right? Which means he's never going to judge you. Right. Donald Trump has created a safe space for half the country to be who they are. That doesn't mean half the country are terrible human beings, but it means that it's, it's the opposite of what they're, uh, what they're getting from the left, which is everything that is wrong with this country is your fault. Right. Racism is your fault. Right. Everything is your fault. You're a bad person. And Donald Trump has created this space where there's no shame and no judgment. Right. I think there's something there that we really need to understand. Yeah. I, I, I know, it's, know, it's, it's I, almost like the Karen effect, right? Yeah. Like who, when did everybody decide, not everybody, because it's really a small, per, a small percentage of percentage of people who walk into Publix yeah. and, you know, kick and yeah. scream. Yeah. But like, that's not okay. Right. Right. And now it's becoming, I think, probably less okay because people are being shamed for it. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. Shame used to keep people in line. Yeah. I don't want to be thought of as the yeah. worst person in my town. Well, let's be, hold on. Let's back up here for a second because shame and guilt are two different things as Brene Brown has taught us so well. Shame is actually a really toxic, destructive emotion because okay. it's about you as a person. Mm -hmm. It means that you're not good enough. And as someone who spent a lot of time in therapy unpacking that <laughs> particular toxicity. This isn't therapy for it you. It is not therapy for me. <laughs> uh, shame, shame is a different thing from guilt. Okay. And guilt is a very useful emotion because mm. it has to do with your actions and what you've done and feeling remorse about something bad that you did. It's extremely useful. Shame metastasizes into really ugly behavior because you start to loathe yourself. And that's what is... I, I think I think we have to separate those two, but 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 we we use them interchangeably in in you know popular vernacular. But guilt is the thing that's actually really useful, and that's the thing that Donald Trump doesn't feel. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, I, I, that's that's yeah. that's an it's a, yes, it's an interesting distinction and one that you know I think that's the other part too, which is if we're going to talk about these things, we should we should use the right language. I think also you know the other thing is like we should use plain language too. Yeah, you know yeah. like. Yeah. Um, you know what we used to call a, a personal inflatable device? What? A life jacket. <laughs> like, why don't we call it a life jacket <laughs> why don't we anymore? Just call it a life jacket, right? You know, I mean, it's yeah. all these things yeah. where we find these words. You know, I mean, George Carlin does a whole riff on this. You know, God rest his soul. 
Like we need to, we need to get back to plain language. We should stop saying we don't want to use these words because they make people uncomfortable. Yeah. We don't, we're not going to, we're not going to be straight with people because, oh God forbid, we tell them the truth. My guess is one of the reasons why we've been successful is because people know we don't bullshit them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. Because they can, they've come to expect it sort of put up the defenses that everything they're going to hear from the political class is, is crap Yeah, because they're right. Yeah. It is. Yep. They don't get the straight, totally they right. don't get the straight dope because yeah. politicians are afraid of telling people the truth because they're afraid, oh gosh, what if they get mad at me for it? Whereas I, I believe that most people would rather be, have you be honest with them, let them process that. Yes. They know that they're, you're lying to them. They resent you for it. And now they retreat back away from the system as opposed to being a part of it. Yes. I think we need a lot more honesty mm-hmm. and I think we'll continue to do that. So where do we go from here? I signed on to everything that you articulated earlier in this, in this episode. I want to take the fight to everybody who has, a, has had a part in trading the underpinnings of this system, the things that make it work for personal power or loyalty to the president. Right. That, that has to be job number one. Right. I think we really need to start a, a a national conversation about what it means that half the country voted for this guy. And we really need to understand it. And we're not going to get anywhere unless we are able to well, bring those people along. So let me ask you this, because, yeah. you know, if, if we go back to 2016, we think about the idea that that the the folks that voted for Trump, well, we should we should we should maybe even back up further than there. In 2016, I'm going to say I'm going to assert that half the country was never going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Yeah. OK, sure. So take that 50 yeah. percent. out. Yeah. So the 50 percent that were left said, well, like he's not, you know, he's not my cup of tea, but he is what he is. He's a Republican. So they knew what they, well, maybe they didn't know what they were signing up for, but they had an idea of like who he was as a person, right? Like this was to your point, this was not a good person, right? He would not fulfill what we would call sort of the highest ideals of manhood of his, you know, time in business, anything else. Right. Um, But after four years, like, you know what you're getting. Yeah. Like this, there's no secret. He's always been, he's the most transparent president we've ever had. That's right. Everything he's ever upset about, you know, either from his Twitter feed or because somebody leaks it to Maggie Haberman at the New York Times and it shows up in the newspaper. So now they've known what he is and how he acts and what he cares about, which is not us. Right. And they still wanted more. And so, you know, it's to me is like, okay, well, is it like that for so many of the, the, so many people in the country, he just represents, you know, the giant like middle finger right? They feel somehow still looked down upon. Um, and he gives them nothing else other than an outlet to say, he hates all those people. I hate all those people. Therefore I'm good with it. Yes. You know, there's only so much of that, I guess I'm willing to account for before I'm like, well, do you really believe in this shit? Yeah. If it's like, well, he tells the world to fuck off and I really want to tell the world to fuck off. Like I get it. Yeah. Um, but that can't like, is that how you go home? Is that how tens of millions of Americans go home every night? Because that's a broader indictment on the whole thing. Like that that's where we've gotten where half the country um, doesn't like the rest of the country because they feel like they're put down. That could be. There is a lot of elitism. There's a lot of looking down the nose. And, and I get it. And I don't like that either. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it should equate to like, I want to find the guy who's going to go full linen and burn everything to the ground. I agree with you. And I think we need to get to the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think that monocausal explanations are helpful. Like because there's a there's a there's a cocktail of things that are at work here. And and I don't think we can move forward until we really understand what's happening. Right. And that's gonna take some work. 
It is, yeah. but I think that it's 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 one of those that's sort of like in a way that we built this airplane while we yeah. were flying it, we're yeah. going to have to do a little oh, bit of yeah. that too, right? Yeah, yeah, like the yeah. fight yeah. against the ugliness has yeah. to has, has to, to proceed has to as we're figuring out how to decode the ugliness. Yes, totally. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.